Hello, and welcome to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. ED editor Luke Nichols here, speaking to you from our usual makeshift podcast studio here in West Sussex. Coming up on today's show, we head to the birthplace of The Body Shop to talk about adopting a back-to-front design for sustainable packaging. Design with the end in mind, and design with the end user in mind, and one of the ideas is designing for wildlife. You design so wildlife can use this packaging, or you design so a community can repurpose it, so that kind of back-to-front way of working is usually valuable for us. And we discuss the sustainability solutions to global megatrends with the business giant that is United Technologies. So just in the next 35 years, we're going to grow our population 35%. So think about that. If we think we live in a crowded world now, it's going to get more crowded. And on top of that, 50% of people live in cities today. By 2050, when we have that 35% more people, 70% will live in cities. So these mega trends are redefining our society and economy with big implications for sustainability. So yes, hello everyone. Here we are then on a pretty grey and uh, miserable uh, morning here, but uh, here's a brighten up your day, I suppose, and uh, bring you a jam-packed episode of this podcast. Uh, and on top of those two interviews that we've got this week, we're also blessed by the presence of uh, the green business aficionado that is uh, Matt Mace. How are you doing? Yeah, very, very well. Yeah, glad I could make it and uh, brighten up people's days and hopefully brighten up mine. Like you said, it's, uh, it's a bit depressing outside, isn't it? Yeah, well, happy Friday. Um, it's been a busy week um, and I, I can hear the cries already of uh, where's George uh, from listeners of the podcast. But uh, yeah, sad news that he's uh, ditched us this week in favour of a, a holiday. So I suppose that shows where his priorities lie. But, yeah, exactly. um, Anyway, yes, I think he's over in where is he, Greece? Italy, Greece, Italy. Italy, yeah. He's over in Italy. Um, so yeah. Anyway, his loss. Uh, but while while he's away, um, as as we mentioned, it's been a, a big week, a busy week. Um, what have you been up to? Um, well, I, I spent this morning how, how I spend most of my mornings, and that's just you know examining the joys of uh, grey water recycling. Ah. Um, but uh, no, this week has been has been an interesting one. In light of George's um, absence, uh, it's it's kind of been a balance between writing up some very, as you said, big stories, which I'm sure we'll get onto. Yeah. And um, you know, I've, I've had the pleasure of a few interviews with like Spin to Serve for, mm-hmm. for the website. It's it's we're kind of in that period right now where sustainability reports are, are flying in. Mm. I, I think we're probably at the end of that window now. Towards the end, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but um, it's it's providing a lot of interesting content to dig and dive through. Yeah, it's strange. It sort of ebbs and flows, doesn't it? Our, the nature of our working week in terms of the things we write about. And it does seem that this week has been a, a huge one in particular for electric vehicles. Um, perhaps a week that will be looked back upon as a bit of a turning point for the market, actually, in fact. Um, it all started on a, a cold Monday morning when uh, uh, Business Secretary uh, Greg Clark announced details of the first phase of the Faraday Challenge, um, which is that four-year, £246 million investment into battery technology, uh, which is, of course, crucial for the development of electric vehicles, particularly when considering vehicle-to-grid technology. Um, And then on Tuesday, was it? Or no, Wednesday, I think it was, um, Environment Secretary Michael Gove, yeah, I think it was Wednesday, Gove unveiled the government's long-awaited air quality plan, which includes... Um, a ban on all new petrol and diesel cars and vans from 2040 uh, along with a 255 million pound fund to help local authorities uh, essentially crack down on emissions 
Some have said, of course, that that plan doesn't go far enough, that it's perhaps a little bit too, too little too late. Um, but it certainly does give us an indication, at least, of the direction we're heading in and the, and the changes we're going to see in Britain's vehicle market over the coming years. Smart, uh, smart as well, publish it just before they, they go on. Exactly, their yeah. yeah, it's always, um, always the way, isn't it? You get a flurry of announcements and then they head off for their summer, yeah. summer break. Um, but those policy announcements were joined by two fantastic stories from the actual automotive world itself. Um, because we had BMW giving um, Brexit Britain a bit of a boost uh, by confirming that a fully electric version of the iconic Mini, um, the Mini E, I think it's called, mm -hmm. uh, is going to be developed and being built at its Cowley plant in Oxford. So that's good news for the market and for electric vehicles generally. Um, and also today, in just a few hours, I think, um, we have the official launch of Tesla's Model 3, um, which is a huge deal. For the vehicle market, is this was the this was the car that racked up I think 250,000 pre-orders in 48 hours. So it's the sort of affordable and cool electric car that people have been waiting for. Are you excited to see that one? I mean, I, I think I was. Um, I think at the time it was announced that, that was that was meant to be the moment that EVs became mainstream for for the not the everyday person, but but it went from a luxury niche to mm. something that is viable for most people. I feel in the years since then, I think policy and certainly other automakers who aren't, you know, perhaps some more established ones have definitely caught up. Mm -hmm. I think you look at, you mentioned what's happening in the UK now by 2040, similar stuff's happening in India, happening in France. And, you know, you've got companies like Ford and Volvo, like Volvo's pledged by 2019, they're not going to produce any more diesel mm. and petrol vehicles. I, I feel like the market is there where, whereas Tesla was a leader, I think there's others that are emerging. Like it's it's an interesting to see because a lot of the details are still mm. quite, I suppose, shrouded in in mystery in the sense that the prices there um, there or thereabouts thirty five thousand dollars. Mm -hmm. um, the mileage is there's still at least two hundred fifteen miles per charge essentially, um, but there, there's still questions about what the larger battery um, sizes can do for that charge. There's still questions about prices beyond the first quarter of a million people on the reservation list. Okay. Because there's essentially legislation which means Tesla won't get any credits and reliefs from it, so prices could still jump. Mm. And whereas you've got like the Chevy Volt, which has, I think, a 230 mile range, mm. 230 mile range for a similar price, it's it's not the be all and end all for EVs. I think it's. I think it is relying on its name as a Tesla vehicle at the moment. <laughs> it's controversial. So you say you say you haven't been swept up by the furore of uh, the Model Three launch, and I feel it's got a similar vibe to what Apple does when it releases a smartphone, doesn't yeah. it? It's got that real kind of oh, must-have latest yeah. thing. Where I think there's, and it's a good thing that there's potentially loads of other vehicles and models out there that, mm. that can break through that mainstream barrier. Yeah, what phone do you have, incidentally? Yeah, it's uh, it's an Apple one. Yeah, <laughs> I I did have a um I did have a, a Windows phone actually. But, um, I think I was just annoyed by the lack of stuff on the App Store. I think if anything, what made me switch was yeah, the lack of apps. So. Yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, so thirty-five thousand dollars, you say. So that's what's that? Like 20, 20, late twenty thousand. I don't know what. 20, yeah, twenty-eight thousand. Brexit, that might have been a bit different. But yeah. Would you buy one? You've got twenty thousand, twenty-seven thousand sitting there. If I did, I I would like to, but yeah, I think. The charging infrastructure in Sussex isn't great. I think there's like, I think the nearest one is Crawley, 
Yeah, I'll let, I'll let you into a, 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 a bit of my psyche because I've been having a weird recurring dream involving Tesla. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, honestly, I've had, I've had about three, three or four dreams in the past, I don't know, six months that involve me in some way ending up buying a Tesla or being at a Tesla factory and driving off or something or stealing the car. <laughs> all been in there somehow tesla seems to be getting into my, into yeah, my that's mind the, that's the dream goal for you isn't yeah it? um anyway let's move on quickly from that um and crack on with today's show so um we have got some interviews to bring you um I'm trying to think of a segue from electric vehicles into this first interview but i can't really can't really make it i guess it's um innovation is probably uh, one way i could <laughs> link in um because um yeah we've got a company here that uh, is making its third appearance on the podcast i just sort of um, Got to get the hat trick ball. Yeah, yeah, some sort of yeah medal or trophy we give out to the for the third app. But this this company is the Body Shop. Um, so why were we paying the Body Shop another visit? Um, well, to be completely honest with you, I wasn't actually entirely sure myself when I was invited. So um, we had a member of the their comms team get in touch and invite us down to the University of Brighton, uh, which is where I went to uni. So that was nice. Um, and it was basically I was invited down, and there was. When I arrived at this on, on campus at Brighton Uni, um, went to the room that they directed me to, and in the room were Body Shop sustainability team, along with a few students, it looked like, and um, and potential kind of industry experts and things. And they were essentially midway through a workshop for sustainable packaging. And so I sat in on this um, workshop, and it was fascinating. Um, and it was hard to explain uh, here, but I'll put a few pictures out in the tweets alongside this podcast and essentially they were setting out ideas that were looking at ways that packaging can be designed more sustainably essentially so we had things like designing packaging so that it's ready for wildlife as a kind of philosophy going into producing it um, using nature itself as packaging so things like I think they had coconut shells there and and creating customer loyalty for things like um, returning plastic bottles or using handheld soap rather than bottled soap um, anyway, I'm making this probably sound a bit confusing um, and left field, but uh, it was really interesting. So let's just get into the chat. Um, so midway through this workshop, I sat down with the Body Shop's International Director of Corporate Responsibility and Campaigns, Chris Davis, and their International Environmental Sustainability Manager, Simon Locke, who I hadn't met before. So uh, we had a chat about packaging innovation, the company's sustainability strategy, and also a little bit about the company's takeover. Um, and how that's affecting or not affecting the sustainability team there. So here's my chat with The Body Shop in full. Yes, hello, uh, and here I am then in uh, Brighton, uh, and today we're with our uh, friends from The Body Shop, um, and I'm joined by the retailer's director of corporate responsibility, Chris Davis, and the international environmental sustainability manager, uh, Simon Locke. Uh, how are you both? Very well, thank you. Nice to see you. Yes. Very well, thank you. Good. Um, and I think it's fair enough to call you uh, friends of this podcast, because I think this is the third time you've been yes, on uh, veterans. podcast, Chris. Veterans, um, yeah. So I think you were back on, uh, you are on our a second episode, I think, back in May last year, talking um, monkey dating, I think we referred to it yes. as um, Good, all the Biobridges programme. I'm glad that's how you remember me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and then I think you took our senior reporter Matt out on a tour of your um, innovation factory yes. over in uh, Croydon. That's right. Um, so yeah, we just can't get enough of you at the moment. Um, and Simon, actually surprisingly, you're uh, the one member of the CSR sustainability team at the Body Shop that I haven't met before, because um, I've met, um, is it Kate Upshon, um, Kate Levine, 
I'm Chris, and I haven't met yourself. Either, this so. is my first time. So, yes. <laughs> so welcome along. Thank you. Um, and yeah, well, I say welcome along, but it's actually, I suppose, you welcoming me here to, to Brighton um, this morning. Um, and to be completely honest with you, I wasn't sure exactly why I was coming along to Brighton. I mean, the first bell that it rang was, obviously, this is the the founding city of um, of the body shop. Um, Anita wrote it back in 1976, I think. Um, and I know that because I used to live here as well. So I remember my friend showing me the first ever store um, over on Kensington Gardens, I think it was. Oh, um, yeah, good knowledge, bonus points for that. Yeah. But Chris, yeah, perhaps you could open, just give us a little bit of an understanding about why we're here today and uh, yeah, why you've invited us along. Sure. Well, I'm glad you didn't know why you were coming. Cause it's always quite fun to, <laughs> it's fun to see your face as you walked into the University of Brighton mm. to see... Um, uh, what I think could be interestingly described as a big toaster, <laughs> a big toaster or, or, or a big bike rack, which is in fact uh, the centrepiece of what is now quite an established partnership that we develop with um, the University of Brighton. One of the one of the things that we're very aware of as a business is if we are going to succeed in our goal of being truly sustainable, we need outside influencers coming in to agitate, coming in to push us along and to make us do a better job, to bring external ideas internally. And academia, as I think we've talked about before, mm. has such, is such a rich area for mm. those areas, uh, for, for, for new ideas. And that's why we're here today, to talk with the University of Brighton, to bring students together, to bring colleagues from the body shop together, to talk about new ideas around sustainable design. Mm. How can we bring cutting-edge sustainable design into our everyday work within the body shop. Okay, yeah, and so we're currently sat in a sort of quiet, fairly quiet library sort of wing of the uh, of the university, I guess, um, yeah, area here. Um, probably disturbing some of the students sat <laughs> over by the computers. But um, so, Simon, I mean, yeah, how long have we have you been partnered with um, with universities on this approach, and why why universities as a as a as a partnership? For this so, um, as Chris kind of mentioned. We, the partnership has been running now uh, for just over a year mm -hmm. and it, I think it was kind of influenced for me um, for a couple of reasons. One, we had the launch of Enrich Not Exploit last year uh, which saw us launch a number of targets uh, through to 2020 and I think there's one target that that links very well which is around our, our need or wants to develop uh, three kind of big innovations in terms of packaging mm -hmm. by 2020. And when we were developing the targets, um, I guess there's a little bit of frustration on our side around kind of standard design practices that happen, mm -hmm. um, not just within the cosmetics industry, but um, you know from speaking to suppliers, they were they were talk to you about how something can be more recyclable or it's lighter. But for us, that wasn't enough. Uh, and we perhaps wanted a very different view, and, and to be challenged. And so um, we were introduced to the university. Mm. Uh, in particular to Professor Jonathan Chapman who's a Professor of Sustainable Design and they, they add a very different uh, element a uh, different approach um, and we've been working with them as I say for a year mm. and the brief has been very much around just trying to challenge the normal way that we design products and, and, to, and to I guess act as a catalyst to try and change or influence how we could design products differently um, 
that adds sustainability, but in a way that perhaps is quite quite subtle. Mm. And it's very much more around connecting customers. I think back with the brand more. Mm. Yeah, and on that, I mean, we just so we just sat in a. Uh, I've just sat in the end of a or the start, I guess, of a um, a workshop that's taking place here, um, and they were introducing some of their product ideas that they have, and they were really fascinating. I can't talk through them all, but um, yeah, some of them. It was all around that idea of um, sustaining the product experience and developing a sense of brand connection, I guess, with the consumer in this area of sustainability. Um, do either of you have any um, standout favourites of those ideas or is there anything there in that, in that one aspect of the session that really stood out as a potential idea you may well investigate or you're right? I think for, I think for me that what academia brings is ideas which are so big uh, and don't consider the, 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 the commercial application uh, that allows people to be really free thinking. So I think that you know, the five themes at the university we're talking about today, uh, you know, many of them can't be applied that quickly to the company. But what they will do, and I think what's actually happening now, what people are talking about is how do you take those big lofty ideas and bring them into a business like ours? Mm. So I think the most exciting for me is, 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 is the breadth of thought okay. rather than any of the particular specific ideas. Specific ideas. Yeah, it's really, really challenging us mm. to think different. I think that's the most exciting thing about this work, yeah. Mm. And um, one of them, I guess, to give our listeners a bit of an insight into some of the th- ideas that were being put on the table, though, was the, I like the plastic bottles one, the idea of kind of creating some aspect of loyalty around um, bringing plastic bottles back in for, for refills. Um, so the idea was that, I guess, you, um, yeah, you bring them, bring your pla- empty plastic, used plastic bottle back into a, uh, a body shop store and then you get a sticker placed onto the bottle and that sticker related to a particular location around That's the world. And then it's almost like a, yeah, like a passport getting your stamps on the passport and that sort of aspect. Exactly, and I think um, that kind of philosophy is you're, you're, adding, you're adding value mm. to what might seem valueless. Aren't you? you're, you're, you're adding, it wasn't, it's not just a plastic bottle. Mm. It's, 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 it's a mark of, of, of the journey that you've taken with that piece of packaging, yeah. which grows and grows as you own it. Yeah. yeah, it was, I noticed there was a lot of, every one of those five products that they showed actually had some aspect of value for the consumer, for the brand. It kind of made sense all around, didn't it? The yes. soap as well, that once it was all... Um, yeah, wash down, you get the token that you can kind of take back to the mm. store. Really fascinating ideas. Yeah. And I think that you know, ultimately it's about the philosophy of design, isn't it? Mm. So, so what I think the university have really helped, different views for me personally, is you know, design with the end in mind mm. and design with the end user in mind. And, and you would have heard Lucas talking about, you know, we design, one of the ideas is designing for wildlife. You design so wildlife can use this packaging, or you design so a community can repurpose it. So that kind of back-to-front way of working, some might say, yeah. I think is usually valuable for us. Yeah, and I think that there's, there's quite subtle layers in, in what some of the ideas have been presented. So, yes, they are more sustainable from an you know, ecological point of view, but it's not that isn't just the key driver. There is, you know, it's connecting customers to the ingredients. In the product, which is really interesting, it's the fact that customers can actually then continue that experience by you know, one of the ideas with the you know, with, with, with the bird box connecting with, with, with wildlife or with um, the plant pot idea that actually you can grow the, the key ingredient mm. that's in the actual uh, product. So it, there's some subtle layers, and I think it's it interests me that you know it's it, it can increase loyalty from customers. It can help them feel that they're actually making a difference as well. Mm. Yeah. I think it's, you're right. So it's about that. It's sustainability and sustainable design can, concept can be quite boring. 
sometimes mm. when you're talking about life cycle analysis you're you know, you're turning your team inside out with 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 reviewing data of whether this is better than that what what i think the ideas are coming out here is that by designing with the end in mind it's all good mm. it's all you don't you, you, it's a very creative process it, 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 it's a very exciting process and as you say emotionally engaging for people that's what's going to drive sustainability. That's going to, what's going to drive our success. Not the fact that it's you know, particularly better for society or environment, but the fact that people engage with it mm. and they want to participate. In it. Mm. That's that's the key, I think. Yeah, I mean, particularly in retail, it's the it's the ultimate challenge, isn't it? Is how do you get the consumers on board? Any aspect of retail now, you kind of see some area where there's a lack of consumer engagement. You need to make that bridge between retail sustainability plan and end user absolutely yes but and i think this is this is certainly this workshop and this thinking is is is, is a good step for us a big step for us yeah right, another interesting for me is the fact it's fun it's it's not taking itself yeah. too seriously i think sustainability csr you know kind of uh, programs can do mm. um, there's a real fun element that it's and, and, and interacting in you know in stores if you take the refills the process of how that could be done there's a real fun element mm. which you know you're doing good but you're, ha- you're having fun as well which is really important yeah and one thing that stood out stands out for me uh, with regards to the body shops commitment and what makes the body shop stand out at the moment through enrich not exploit among other retailers is this ability that you seem to have of, of thinking outside the box quite constantly and not just looking at managing your own operational impacts and actually looking at driving broader change so i mean how do you do? How do you go about doing that? How do you ensure that you're innovating, hosting events like this, whilst also managing the kind of the here and now and the things that need to get done? I'm, I'm thinking of this almost from as well from a kind of from a board level perspective as well, because you need to be showing them that you're also managing things now. Yeah, I think I think the key thing is that we took quite a long time to prepare this strategy before mm-hmm. we went public with it. So the the the, the uh, Creating a pipeline of external influences, I think, has been critical. So, University of Brighton being one, Future Fit, of course, being another, and a few other things that are coming are coming down the line. And I think, you know, when when we look back at the heritage of of, of the company, um, one of the things that has driven our system is listening to people who are not within the business. So, whether that's NGOs or, or think tanks or, or academia, that was one thing that I mean, Anita Roddick loved that. She loved talking to all these people, bringing in completely different philosophies. And mm. I think one of the things that influences our team is, is, is the idea of keeping that uh, philosophy going mm. within the company, listening outside, bringing inside. Mm. That's, that's key. That's my ambition for our team. That's my ambition for sustainability at the body shop. Okay. Well, let's talk about that ambition then. Um, so I've got here the Enrich Not Exploit, uh, a little page that I printed out unsustainably, I guess, um, uh, which just sums up some of the targets that you've, that you've put in place through um, that plan, which was launched about a year ago. Yeah. Um, how have things gone? How, a year on, you reflect on this, are you, are you happy? Are you, is there anything that surprised you along the way? What's the overwhelming feeling that you have one year on? In terms of progress to our targets, we're doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're pretty happy that you know, the, the progress on doubling our community trade program is you know, pretty good. Um, our progress to, for example, developing um, packaging that doesn't contain fossil fuel—you know—that's pretty good. You know, it's pretty good. It's, it, 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 it's uh, making the progress that we expected. I think the our, our nature, though, at the company is always to think: how can we go one step further? Mm. And that's what makes us quite, me particularly, irritating uh, to, to say, come on, what, what is it we can do more of? And I think one of the things we can do more of is innovation. 
mm-hmm. uh, particularly around packaging. So that's one of the challenges that we focused on. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I think we can do a little better on is um, some of our performance in terms of saving energy. So there's bits there that, that, that we can improve on. But overall, and you know, the, the, the reports have been published now. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're published in a film format. So mm-hmm. everyone can have a look at them. Everyone can see them on our, on our website. You'll see that out of the 14, I think we're pretty happy with 12. Two, we need to do more on. Um, but yeah, it's pretty good progress. Simon, any of those other any other targets you would want to mention as targets that either stand out as particular kind of um, success points, challenges? Um, what, what, what targets? Yeah, I think for me, I have a very strong personal connection with our our target around building biobridges. So yeah. we have the target to uh, protect and regenerate seventy five million square meters of habitat by twenty twenty. Uh, we had a great year last year. We launched our first biobridge in, in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, we've already uh, protected over 17 million square metres, so we're well on track. And I think it's not just the performance against the target, it's been the feedback we've had from customers through our stores and our markets around the world of how much they've engaged with that target that we are about to um, develop the programme further. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have some exciting news that uh, around biobridges, and we want to do more. Um, uh, I think for me that that's been a great thing, and I think it's not just a forest or conservation protection scheme; it's the impact we have on communities as well. It's, it's really exciting, but mm. we're just I think scratching the surface of what we can achieve with that one. Mm. Yeah, you got to get us out there because you'll be our next tour. Yeah, you know, come, yeah, no, it'd be great. <laughs> because we, as Simon said, we, we Vietnam, India. You, you've just come back from Malaysia, Indonesia, so. I think our expectation probably that we, is that we'd maybe do one, one, one by which maybe mm. two, but such has been the engagement from customers and, and, and our people around the world that we've gone to four places already. Mm. And the ambition there, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't stop. Okay. Yeah. And on, on note of the reporting these targets, Chris, you mentioned um, doing it through these videos um, on my way up to the trip. Uh, on my way up here this morning um, on the train I had a good look at uh, one of those videos the introductory video um, of yourself here in Brighton I think just around the corner um, talking about some of the the goals that you've set and the philosophy behind that approach Um, so actually let's let's, let's have a quick listen to um, that video it's about a minute long so let's just play that now Welcome to Brighton, on the south coast of England, a vibrant, creative and free-thinking kind of place. It was a perfect city for Anita Roddick to open the first body shop store here in 1976. The people of Brighton are still proud that it was in their city that the body shop started and that alongside companies like Patagonia and Ben & Jerry's, it's credited as being one of the founders of modern corporate social responsibility, an advocate for the belief that business should be a force for social and environmental change. Our founding principles and the philosophy of Anita Roddick remain the cornerstone of how we work today. They have given us the platform on which we build. But we recognise that the world has changed dramatically in the past 40 years, and today the planet finds itself in a precarious place. We believe the evidence is overwhelming. It proves that we are now in a new geological era, the Anthropocene, and that human activity is destroying the natural world on which we depend. From climate change, deforestation and ocean acidification to loss of biodiversity and nitrogen and water cycles. Even though many businesses are taking action, it's not enough. All evidence suggests that Paul Hawken, the environmentalist, is right when he states that if every company performed to the same level as the world's leading businesses in sustainability, we would still collapse. 
We believe we are facing a crisis which humankind has never faced before. We believe all business must take meaningful action and look outwards to transformation, to what they need to do across all their operations to create the system conditions for a sustainable future rather than looking inwards, delivering incremental improvements here and there. Business must evolve and champion transformation. It must move away from defending and justifying short-term business interests and champion a new direction, a new longer-term perspective, so business heads towards a more sustainable future. At The Body Shop, we believe we have made a step forward and committed the company to be a truly sustainable business based on science and what the planet and society need to flourish. We acknowledge we don't know how to achieve every part of this, but we know that it is a step in the right direction towards fulfilling our goal. This report explains how through 14 targets, tactical short-term steps, we have made a start. Here's a story from those who have worked on these steps and who share the vision of creating a truly sustainable company. We've made good progress in some areas and faced unexpected challenges in others. But across everything we have done, we have learnt and we are improving. And through the continued work, we remain dedicated to honouring the founding principles of The Body Shop and Anita Roddick and remaining a pioneer of responsible and truly sustainable business. Okay, well, there you go. Um, fascinating. Um, very compelling. Um, it was almost like a documentary as well. It sort of felt, had the feeling of, of a documentary to it, the way you were talking to the camera, Chris. Um, so that's quite a new approach to reporting sustainability. Um, one would just think of producing a, a hard document or at least just publishing something on a website, but actually doing it through a series of videos. Why did you take that approach? We took the approach because we, we, know, we know sustainability reports are not read by many people mm. and often um, they're not that interesting. I think the last, we, we, have, we, we have produced them in the past and, 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 and mostly we get feedback from our mums or our families <laughs> to say they were pretty good but, but nobody else. Mm. So we figured well rather than just doing it for, for, for our families we should do it for um, two principal audiences. One is our internal people mm -hmm. because I think for, for, for us within the company we are driven by a culture of, 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 of driving change particularly at, you know, some, often a challenging time for the body shop so mm -hmm. we wanted to create something that people would watch internally mm -hmm. feel inspired by uh, and feel motivated by so that's the first thing and then the second thing we wanted to produce them so our customers could engage and understand how we are progressing as a business towards our goal of true sustainability. So really, accessibility mm -hmm. was the reason that we did these, you know, they range, as you say, one minute to about, I think Simon speaks for a couple of minutes, we've got yeah. some people speaking about four minutes, so there's a whole range of mm. them. Uh, and our hope was that we would do something that people liked and enjoyed. Um, and if it works, we'll do it again. If it doesn't, we'll, we'll think of another way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I think it's um, certainly something needs to happen to make these sustainability reports get read by the end consumer doesn't it yeah. and I think the video seems to be the logical way of doing it particularly with a brand like Body Shop where you've got that it doesn't feel it didn't feel awkward or wrong watching you speak about these things yeah. I um, hope not I mean and, and, I, and the other the other cool thing I think is that it, obviously it's not just me or Simon speaking there are people from around the company yeah. speaking who've been engaged in you know, we've got our researchers we've got our guys who design the stores there's a whole host of different people so we, we hope that 
our key stakeholders um, can see who the people behind the company, the people who care about the body shop deeply, that they're, they're pushing the agenda mm. uh, as far as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the points you mentioned in that video, a uh, quote, was that you said, "We must create the system conditions for a sustainable future, rather than looking inwards." Mm. Um, can you just expand on that? What, do you feel that too many businesses, other retailers, are looking inwards and not actually looking at the bigger picture enough? Yes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> next question. I think, that, I think one of the things that we have learned within the company is you know, clearly you know, that we are in peril. You know, society and environment is in peril because, and business is driving that. Mm. Uh, and it's it's really important that we look at what the planet needs and what society needs, rather than what we can, what is good for business or is bearable for business. We have to we have to walk through that wall. Mm. And when we talk about systems conditions, it's the system conditions for the planet and society, not for the body shop. And and, and the trick will be ensuring that we do that whilst driving our business success, mm -hmm. getting that balance. So yeah, I think that's, and that's what's so exciting when we talk about that and we challenge ourselves to challenge our industry, that's where it gets interesting for us. Mm -hmm. Okay, and just wanted to talk finally then about two kind of backdrops currently facing business and the body shop specifically um, that are maybe particularly challenging or just at least a little bit volatile. One is obviously the current sort of geopolitical uncertainties around Trump and Brexit and the new government here in the UK. Does any of this have any sort of impact on you guys in the sustainability team? Do you look at that at all in terms of the policy and regulatory landscape or are you fully now in the mindset of going beyond compliance? It's, we're obviously aware of it but I think the because we set us, uh, ourselves a target of being truly sustainable, scientifically sustainable, which means that it's zero harm, zero harm to society zero harm to the environment based on future fits framework because we set that very ambitious goal our focus is on that we don't particularly care what Donald Trump is saying in mm. terms of his policy on climate change we don't really particularly care what the the UK government if we if we have one uh, <laughs> listening to this is saying around societal objectives you know our, we, 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 we are very clear on what goals we need to achieve Mm -hmm. and, and, and a determination to achieve them regardless of uh, what politicians are saying. I think, I think the world, I think many of us are seeing that the, the world needs leadership now. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem to be coming from certain quarters of politicians. Mm -hmm. It needs to come from, from, from progressive business. It needs to come from uh, progressive individuals. And for us as a body shop, we want to be part of that. We want to be one of those people. Mm -hmm. We want to be one of those individuals that look, look beyond day-to-day -day. okay, okay. Um, and the final thing um, again uh, without wanting to put you on the spot with this but I think one thing that needs to be mentioned here at the moment one of the big business stories around the body shop is the potential I think takeover that may be happening um, involving um, the Brazilian cosmetics company Natura uh, which owns the Aesop brand Aesop brand um, so without going into too much depth around that um, have you any idea at this stage what those business changes might mean for the sustainability team? Are you confident that sustainability is ingrained enough in this brand to, to leave it untouched or at least support it? Mm. Um, you're right. I, can't, I can't say too much, but I can give you a, a couple of thoughts which may be helpful. I think we st we when we started in which not exploit work preparations four or five years ago, we looked at a number of competitors um, and benchmarked ourselves against them. And Natura were one of the companies. 
um, actually we did a study a little bit with Cambridge on this, Natura were one of the companies that came out as being you know, real leaders mm-hmm. in this industry. So regardless of what their relationship is or could be with the body shop, they, they appear to be a pretty good business yeah. and, and, and with, with, with ethics and values in, 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 in their roots. And I think they've also said publicly that Anita Roddick was a big influence on them. So that's kind of a, you know, my, my knowledge of Natura is not great, but the work that I've seen them do, we, we really admire mm-hmm. and has been a good, good influence for us. I think the other thing I'd say that ethics and values are integrated so strongly into the body shop. And I think the important thing for us moving forward, whatever the shape of ownership takes, is that the culture of the company, the, 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 the leadership of the business has to recognise and preserve what makes the body shop the pioneering company mm. that, that, that Anita Goddard created, which is pushing the sustainability agenda, mm. looking at system conditions and driving, bravely driving change. Mm. And my hope is whatever, whatever changes within the business, that that culture is, is, is both preserved and then celebrated yeah i'm sure it will be i mean yeah knowing now that you're over a year into this strategy you've set it all out you've managed to launch things like that innovation hub over in croydon you've set up about partnerships like this one here today so i think it's um yeah let's yeah. let's hope but you know we got we're, we're positive i'm mean, really yeah we got positive positive vibes about this mm. it's going to be and, and and i think what you what you certainly have is a committed group of people within the body shop who really want to make this happen, share the vision of what we want to achieve, uh, and yeah, we'll walk through the walls to do it. Yeah, well, uh, on that note, uh, I think we should end it there. Thank you so much, Simon um, and Chris, for inviting me down, uh, back to my hometown, um, and to to see the Body Shop's research and development here in action today. So um, I guess we should probably get back into the the tour behind us. So uh, thanks very much, Chris and Simon. Thank you, Luke. Thank you. Thank you. There you have it. Uh, thanks to Simon and to uh, Chris Davis. Always good to have Body Shop on as a sustainability leader on the, on the podcast. Well, I guess Chris here yeah, might be getting a little bit sick of us just chasing him around with a podcast microphone. So, Yeah, I think uh, last time I spoke to him was, was in the little innovational lab. That's it, yeah. And I had to go back straight after because I left my coat in there. You think he was very sick of the sight of me by that point. <laughs> Do you know what? I, I left my bag as well in that interview as well yeah. after, that, after that workshop. Yeah, I ran back and... Like very disarming him. about their approach. And you just <laughs> get lost in the chat and forget everything else. Yeah, anyway, so... Um, Moving on to our second interview of today's show then, and uh, Matt, we're over to you. Uh, So what have you got for us? Yeah, so um, I have recently spoken to uh, a man called John Mandyke, um, the Chief Sustainability Officer at United Technologies. Um, United Technologies is one of those uh, companies I think everyone's heard of, but they they cover such a broad palette Mm. that no one's ever entirely sure what they actually do, but... You know, they do everything from, you know, manufacturing jet engines for aeroplanes to, you know, working on the hydraulic system for lifts. Essentially, if you are in a mode of transport where you are mo- where you are being moved from X to Y, but you're not physically moving, okay. they have probably helped out on that in some way. <laughs> okay. um, they're just a huge and in- interesting company, and he is an extremely interesting uh, man to speak to. Um, he's got a, a real passion, obviously, um, for smart cities, I suppose, and that transition, how technology is really going to be central to that smart city um, tran- transition you know obviously he's an expert in green aviation as his company would dictate but interestingly it, it also ranges to, to food waste he's recently published a co-authored a book on food waste you know about healthy eating and reducing food waste in the kitchen 
he's you know a man of many hats and many talents and mm. I, I think it really shines through in this chat as well okay well um let's have a listen so here's the chat with john van dyke who is the chief sustainability officer there at united technology so here it is in full Okay, today I am back in London and uh, this week I am talking to John Mandyke, the Chief Sustainability Officer for United Technologies Corporation. Um, for those of you who don't know, UTC is a leader in the aerospace, commercial buildings and food refrigeration industries, um, providing tech systems for brands such as Carrier, Otis and Pratt & Whitney. Um, so John, I realise this is a largely US-based company, so I suppose my first question is, what brings you to London this week? Well, actually, uh, thank you, Matt, for having me on the podcast. Um, 60% of our revenues are outside the United States, uh, so we truly are a global corporation, a Fortune 50 company with 200,000 employees doing business around the world. So our customers are global, and we, we serve the global base. And I'm in he- here in London um, you know, meeting with uh, customers. Um, meeting with some of my colleagues um, and uh, you know understanding the latest trends in sustainability here in London and in, across Europe. And then how has how has the trip been so far? Has it been enlightening, or is it? Because I always find there's a danger sometimes when you get a load of like-minded sustainability professionals in a room. It can be a bit of an echo chamber, or has this been eye-opening for you so far? No, I always learn something new, um, and uh, there's certainly a lot to learn uh, from Europe when it comes to sustainability, and particularly here in the UK where. Uh, there are many progressive policies that are advancing um, environmental sustainability. Okay, and just before we get started, um, I, I kind of listed um, those companies beforehand. Um, Pratt & Whitney is one I'm probably most familiar with, right. um, cause they've obviously done some work with NASA and whatnot. Um, I did notice Carrier was an interesting one. I was looking for your LinkedIn profile. I noticed you used to be the um, was it the Vice President for Sustainability there? Yes. So is, is that how that that partnership launch between between you two? Were you kind of the bridge? Yes, I was. I was. So I've been at United Technologies for almost 25 years. I started in our carrier brand, um, which manufactures as a leader in the manufacture of heating, ventilating, air conditioning, and food refrigeration equipment. Um, in fact, uh, Dr. Willis Carrier invented modern air conditioning in uh-huh. 1902, and, and we carry on his legacy. So I started um, in sustainability um, about eight years ago at Carrier. My, my previous roles were in communications and public policy work, but we really formalized our sustainability function at Carrier about eight years ago. Um, and then two years ago, um, I was fortunate to be asked to create that role at the United Technologies corporate level. Uh, so today I serve as the chief sustainability officer across all of our brands, and you, you've listed some of them. Pratt & Whitney is a global leader in uh, jet engine um, technology. Um, another company we have is UTC Aerospace Systems, which is the lo- world's largest provider of aerospace systems. So in fact, every second of every day, an airplane takes off with our systems on board. So it's whether it's the jet engine or it's the cockpit controls or the landing gear or the brakes or the wing actuators or the onboard air quality systems or the, uh, or the sensor systems. We make uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of systems for, for aircraft, and so uh, we're a world leader in that. Um, you had mentioned Otis Elevator. Uh, Otis is the world leader in elevator and escalator systems, or lifts as we call <laughs> yeah. them in the U.K., um, Otis has 2 million installed elevators, so that means that um, the Otis alone moves the equivalent of the world's population every three days. That's how many people ride lifts, um, and that's the scale of our installed base. We also have um, uh, fire and security businesses, Um, so we own Chubb Security, which is a a big company here in the U.K., uh, providing uh, fire and and building safety and security uh, and and home safety um, as well. 
and then the carrier business. And so, um, you know, altogether, um, about $56 billion in revenues um, and truly committed to how we can advance the world sustainably, particularly as we face two mega trends in the world, which is population growth and urbanization. Um, so just in the next 35 years, we're going to grow our population 35%. Uh, so think about that. If we think we live in a crowded world now, it's going to get more crowded. And on top of that, 50% of people live in cities today. Um, by 2050, when we have that 35% more people, 70%, uh, nearly 70% will live in cities. So these mega trends are redefining our society and economy with big implications for sustainability. That's what we think about every day when we look at new product development, new technology development, and the role we can play to help the world urbanize in a more sustainable fashion. So, I mean, you're already kind of the, I suppose, one of those hidden levers behind uh, just people getting around the world, whether it's from one floor to the other or from one country to the other. And so you, um, I imagine with your kind of sustainability hat when you are mapping these kind of future trends, I, I saw the um, the article you uh, you wrote for the Huffington Post, actually, and the, 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 the fact that got me was already, you know, around 37 million flights annually carrying 3.5 billion people. It's a ridiculous number. And that the, the number of commercial planes will almost double by 2030 to around 47,000. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're, we're seeing that right here in the, in the UK with um, the approval of the third runway at Heathrow. It's, it's something we've been covering in depth on ED, and it's something that's met with just such jarring, I suppose, juxtaposition of how you can do this thing of expanding growth and, you know, e you know, keeping emissions steady, let alone actually actually reducing them. So how is that challenge, that also, I suppose, that decoupling in the aviation sector, how is that going to happen? Well, you've pointed out we're about to enter a very historic ramp in the growth of aviation around the world, um, doubling of air travel basically in the next 20 years. That's because despite the fact of the big numbers you just mentioned of the people flying today, the fact is less than 18% of the world's population has stepped foot on an airplane. Mm. Um, that means um, as the middle class grows with urbanization, people are moving to cities for economic opportunity. So as people have more economic opportunity, they have more disposable income. As they have more disposable income, they will take to the skies. And that's why air travel is going to double. So we look at that and we say, how do we accomplish that ramp in a more sustainable fashion? And for us, you know, the answer is very clear. It's technology. Um, we invested $11 billion U.S. dollars to bring to market the world's most fuel-efficient jet engine. It launched um, last year. Um, it's flying um, in Europe. It's flying in the United States. It's flying in Asia. It's called the geared turbofan jet engine. Um, it reduces fuel consumption by 16% on day one, okay. which is a big mm. generational gain in the history of jet aviation. Um, that 16% um, saves enough money at today's fuel prices. It saves a million dollars per airplane on fuel costs. And so for that very reason, we have 8,000 of these engines on order because it's bringing value to the airline industry and reduced cost. But on top of that, there's environmental value in the reduced fuel consumption. Uh, the jet engine also reduces nitrous oxide or smog emissions by 50%. Okay. And then here's what's key for urbanization. This jet engine reduces its noise footprint by 75%. Mm. 75%. So that's, that's, that'd be a noticeable difference. Yeah, I mean, there, that means there's a lot of people who live around airports who wouldn't hear this airplane. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that's one answer for how 
Uh, we see the jet aviation industry expanding to accommodate all the more people that are going to fly in a more sustainable way. The other thing we do from a technology standpoint is look at how, how do we reduce weight on board with the component systems that we make, separate and aside from the gains we can get from the jet engine. And so, you know, for example, we invest heavily in technology and carbon fibers, for example, and in, um, in landing gear and brake sets. You know, uh, an, uh, an airplane can weigh as much as 850,000 pounds. Um, so, you know, landing it safely and, and stopping it safely is uh, something we think about a lot. Um, you know, by introducing carbon fibers into the brake systems, we can uh, remove as much as 700 pounds uh, off, the, off the brakes, um, which, you know, less weight. Uh, means less fuel burn, uh, means more sustainability, more environmental gains. So that's one example. Landing gear, uh, another very heavy component in an airplane, can mm. weigh as much as ten to 20,000 pounds. Just the landing gear itself, a very critical component. Um, you know, as we look at the future and where we see carbon fibers going, we could easily see in the next decade perhaps another two, 3,000 pounds that can come off of the landing gear uh, just through the introduction of, of carbon fibers. And then today what we're really excited about is how airplanes are becoming much more electric on board. Okay. And a good example of that is um, actuators. So actuators are the devices that, for example, move wing flaps mm. on, on the airplane. And historically those have been done through pneumatic or hydraulic systems, which means uh, those systems required literally miles of piping and, and cabling on board to do that. Um, and hundreds of pounds of hydraulic fluid to do that. We've replaced those with actuators that don't require any of that. They run off of the electrical system on the airplane. So we take all that weight off the board, off the airplane, all that fluid, which is oil-based, by the way, okay. the, the miles of the tubing, um, and that, you know, can save a lot. You know, in, uh, you know, about 2,000, about, you know, a quarter, 25% of the components on an air, airplane were electric uh, powered. Today it's about 65%, and we see it in the future going to about 85%. And that'll be another big gain for sustainability as we continue to move weight off the airplane so we can increase its uh, fuel efficiency. And um, I, always, I always feel that, I suppose, in the aviation sector, technology is um, obviously going to be one of the key drivers, but it's perhaps um, not quite what all aircrafts are targeting. I always assume, you know, we get a lot of stuff about them targeting the actual fuel that goes in, you know, our cold to jet, our cold to fuel type stuff has mm -hmm. been examined. It's kind of viewed as the, the holy grail. But um, in regards to Heathrow, again, the, the airports commission said it was actually going to be green technologies, um, like the stuff you mentioned, that would offset a lot of the extra flights coming in. Heathrow have done a lot of stuff around this, the immediate area with like driverless pods. And I, I suppose when you view transport as a whole, you always feel about, how that transport's being powered, but you know the the article again going back to the article you wrote for Huffington Post kind of alluded to planes as like a flying village. It's got all the the catering needs, the water needs, internet's now a, you know almost a, a human right by nature now. So is is that a, an overlooked part from the airline should be looking at? They should be looking at these kind of weight reductions, these how they how they you know cater for the on site stuff rather than just going straight for that that kind of fuel when perhaps that isn't ready to, to play the role it should be? Well, certainly the uh, the emergence of biofuels is coming on strong. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've been around for a while, uh, but that industry is uh, growing. It's not quite at scale yet, but it's, it's getting there because, you know, uh, we see, um, you know, almost monthly uh, airlines putting on new routes that are um, 
supported with biofuels. Mm-hmm. And so today's um, jet fuel is uh, Jet A. It's basically kerosene. Um, and it's not that expensive with lower fuel prices. In fact, in many cases, it costs the airlines more to serve uh, passengers water than it does to put jet fuel on the, on the okay. airplane. Um, it's about 99 cents a gallon, mm. um, US, you know, U.S. cents. Um, and so um, it's tough right now for biofuels to compete with that. Um, but, you know, longer term, you know, if the price of oil goes up and the price of uh, jet fuel goes up, um, you know, biofuels will become more uh, competitive. Um, and there's big savings there from an environmental standpoint. If, if jet fuel was replaced 100% with uh, biofuels, we could reduce the carbon footprint of aviation by 80%. Okay. I'm not sure we'll get there mm. because of the cost of the biofuels and because of the availability. Um, but certainly there's a role for them, and there's more and more coming on board, which means they're becoming more cost-competitive. And we see airlines, um, uh, international airlines, domestic airlines, starting to embrace biofuels. We know a lot about it. We actually chair the, um, the industry committee in the United States that approves biofuels for use in mm. airplanes. Um, and so there are about seven that have been approved, uh, and they act just the same as, as Jet A fuel, and they're considered that. Most airlines are blending them today, um, and that's just from a, um, a conservative mm. uh, safety standpoint. Um, and so you see some using 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 percent. Um, but, um, you know, they, they act the same as jet fuel. And the exciting thing here is you can take a super efficient jet engine, like the new geared turbofan jet engine we've introduced, which again saves fuel burn 16%, and then add in a biofuel, and now you're making even more tremendous gains to reduce the carbon footprint of aviation. And um, I'm interested to hear your, your thoughts on this question about um, countries who are trying to really grasp the, the expected growth in the aviation sector. Um, in line with, I suppose, the commitments of the Paris Agreement to, to you know reduce emissions, is is there a case that companies can both reach for this, you know, what is a, a money maker of the aviation sector, the you know the transport sector, um, holidays, tourism, as you mentioned, is going to absolutely skyrocket by twenty thirty. Can can they do both? Is is it a case of you can't put that aviation sector into the basket with the rest of them? I mean, it was left out of the Paris Agreement. They had to make their own, um, you know, had to make their own protocol for it. Right, right. No, you can do both, and we have to back up and remember that um, aviation. Um, supports uh, 3.4% of the global economy. Mm. Um, And so um, it plays a critical role in connecting our cities, connecting our societies, connecting our cultures. Um, And so uh, aviation is, you know, key to the global economy, and we can do both. Um, You had mentioned um, that um, aviation was not included in the Paris Climate Mm. Agreement. Um, That was by design because there is a separate United Nations protocol for that. It's Mm. called ICAO, the um, International Civil Aviation Organization. Um, It it acts uh, in a similar way to the uh, UN uh, Climate Convention framework. Mm. Um, ICAO has been around for a long, long time. Um, and ICAO had its COP21 moment in October. Yeah, of course. Um, where uh, two important things came out of ICAO for the first time for the global aviation industry. The first is 
after 2020, new aircraft types have to meet a new um, energy efficiency mm -hmm. standard as, a, as an airplane, which is new. And then secondly, after 2020, although it starts in stages and ramps up, um, international airlines will be required to grow in a carbon-neutral way. Um, so that means if uh, you're an international airline and you want to fly to a new country and put on a new route, you have to find a way to offset those emissions by either retiring an old route, which probably isn't going to happen, or buying a super efficient jet engine, or introducing biofuels, or buying carbon offsets in some way, or a combination of those will have to occur. And so uh, in some ways, the aviation industry is, is could be the only industry group that has signed up for self-regulation mm. from a climate standpoint to uh, put out these big goals and these big frameworks um, to grow in a carbon-neutral way. And, and that, that aspect of self-regulation, is that, is that a positive? Is that a negative? I mean, when, when it was established in October, the reaction from European ministers was, it was lukewarm. They were, they were glad that it's on the table but um, I think they were expecting a bit more am ambition from it. So does that self-regulation act as a kind of double-edged sword where they, they can relax on the standards a little bit? Well, you have to remember that what's important is these are global regulations. Mm. Um, and this is one industry that deserves gro global regulations because um, airplanes, by definition, um, fly globally. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's very difficult um, and, 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 frankly, onerous to try to regulate this on a country-by-country -country basis. Um, and so that's the benefit of ICAO, is coming up with these global standards. So, of course, um, some think they're too strict. Some think they're, um, they're not strict enough. Uh, it's kind of a Goldilocks moment. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think we, we are supportive of uh, what came out of ICAO in October. Um, it's a great framework for how the aviation industry can move forward in a more sustainable fashion. And by the way, they've already done so. You know, th this is an industry that's been embracing fuel efficiency for a long time because fuel is, uh, in many cases, the number one cost for an airline. Um, for many industries, labor is the, is the mm. first cost. But here it's fuel. And so if you save fuel, you're, you're saving money for the airline. Um, the dividend, of course, is then um, you're providing benefits to the environment. So there's always been a push for fuel efficiency in the airline industry. Now it's going to go even stronger uh, with the ICAO regulations. And obviously the aviation's role um, in this kind of smart city transition that you mentioned earlier, that this urbanization, people moving towards the cities, you know, airports going to become a key hub of that. And obviously... Um, I noticed you're the chair of the Corporate Advisory Board for the World Green Building Council. That's correct. Um, so I, I thought we'd open this conversation up just a little bit. And, sure. and, you know, green buildings, green infrastructure, smart cities, is it all sounds just fascinating on paper. It's something yeah. that I, I personally really enjoy writing and researching about. It's, it's a challenge, but it's probably up there with aviation in regards to transitioning to a low-carbon economy, like yeah. the, the retrofit projects that are going to have to happen throughout Europe, throughout, throughout the world, um, is, is exceptional. It sounds like there's a lot more, um, I suppose, market-ready technologies in, there, in that area that, that are ready to go. Um, I know the World Green Building Council is calling for all new bills to be you know, zero carbon by 2050. Um, Really, really am ambitious goals. So, how excited are you, as someone that develops the tech for this? You know, not just as a business aspect, but um, personally, that this is really starting to pick up steam. Yeah. So it's it's very exciting and very important. You know, buildings consume more energy than anything else 
on the planet. Mm -hmm. Buildings consume 40% of the world's energy. So the future of sustainability and the future of buildings clearly go hand in hand. And we will never meet our 2050 or whatever date you want to pick for climate goals if we don't address the building sector now. Um, just looking around London is testament to the fact that buildings last a long time. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, 50, 100, 200, 300 years. And so we have to think about today what we can do in buildings uh, because they're going to be here a long time. And lots of opportunities, lots of opportunities, um, you know, connecting buildings and airports, for example. A large airport will consume as much energy as a city of 100,000 people. Okay, wow. So, you know, how we look at the advanced uh, energy efficiency, heating, ventilating, air conditioning systems in those buildings, the, the advanced efficiency in the elevator systems are important. I mentioned buildings consume 40% of the world's energy. If you look inside of a building, 45% of the energy used in the building come from the products my company makes. <laughs> It's the elevator, the mm. lift system, and the heating, ventilating, and air conditioning system. So we've spent a long time trying to understand how we can make big, big breakthroughs in sustainability there for, for building owners for two reasons. One, we want to bring value to our, our customers. But two, we I'm not shy to say that we literally helped to create the green building movement in 1993 my company was the first to join the very first Green Building Council in the world, mm, okay. in the U.S. Green Building Council. And we actually incubated that organization. We bought the paper clips. We did the mailings to literally get the movement off the ground. 1993, there was one Green Building Council in the world. Today, there are nearly 100 national Green Building Councils around the world, organized by the World Green Building mm. Council, as you just mentioned, that I uh, chair the Corporate Advisory Board. So this is a movement that's gone global, and that's great. Technology has a clear role to play here, and the elevator or lift industry is a, is a good example of that. You need energy to send an elevator up, but it's going to come down by itself <laughs> through the most fundamental force on the planet, which is gravity. But that gravity is a source of free energy. And so what we were the first to do is to standardize and put regenerative drives on our elevators. So okay. when they come down, they generate energy to repurpose it to send the elevator back up. That type of technology breakthrough, you can reduce elevator energy consumption 70%. So that's a, that's a big gain there. In the um, heating, ventilating, air conditioning world, um, lots of activities there. From an energy-efficient standpoint, there are you know, chillers that cool large buildings that are 44% more efficient than the industry standard. Opportunities there. Um, opportunities um, with a separate UN protocol, the Montreal Protocol, which is uh, advancing new refrigerants to change out uh, refrigerants that have a high global warming potential in, in, in these air conditioning systems and new ones that have lower global warming potentials. That's real time. That amendment just passed last year. So big advancements uh, coming on the horizon there too. And then we've, we've obviously spoken about the way we travel, about the way we operate in our work environment, the built environment. I suppose that the last thing to talk about is, is us ourselves, not necessarily me. I didn't, wouldn't put anyone through a podcast about that, but, um, but individuals. Because um, I know it's another thing um, about you is you, um, you're the co-author of a, of a book, um, of a recent one called uh, Food Foolish, um, which I think when I was doing my research um, was a, a, a nice surprising tangent from someone who's clearly a, a, an expert on all things tech to have this kind of book that's um, essentially helping people reduce food waste. How, how did how did that start? How did that come about? 
Well, from a couple different perspectives. Um, our company isn't as well known for it, but uh, we're the global leader in food refrigeration. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, the technologies of United Technologies keep more food fresh before it reaches the refrigerator at home than anybody else. Okay. So we make marine container refrigeration systems that move food in our oceans. We make truck and trailer refrigeration systems that move food on, from our farms to our markets. And we make supermarket refrigeration systems that keep food fresh at retail outlets. Hmm. So we have a long and unique insight into the global food supply. And frankly, what we see concerns us uh, for how we can sustainably feed this growing population, uh, this race to 9 billion people. Um, and what was eye-opening for me is when I learned three years ago that the carbon footprint of, of food waste if measured as a country, would be the world's third largest mm -hmm. emitter of greenhouse gases. That really opened my eyes and changed the way that we think about food. From the very fact of the matter is, is we waste 40% of our food, never makes it from our farm to our fork. Happens for a lot of different reasons in a lot of different places. But the staggering uh, opportunity here is that we grow and produce enough food on the planet today to feed 10 billion people. Mm. We live on a planet of 7 billion people, and only about 6 billion are getting enough food. Um, so that 40% inefficiency represents the food that's lost or wasted along the way. One of the main reasons it's wasted is because it spoils. Um, Two-thirds of all the food that's lost or wasted happens um, at the production and distribution level, primarily in emerging economies. This is where food doesn't make it out of the field from harvest, or it rots in poor transportation networks, or it rots in open-air markets. Um, the reason that is is less than 10% of the world's perishable foods are refrigerated today. Okay. And so refrigeration... Uh, basic refrigeration technologies, particularly in emerging economies, will go a long, long way to extend the world's food supply so that we can do two things. We can feed the people who are hungry today, but then we can save all that food that's wasted today to feed the people of tomorrow and not grow the environmental footprint associated with it. You could think of it this way. Um, you know, a poor analogy here is if you think of our global food system as an automobile, mm -hmm. what we're talking about today to feed the planet of 2050 is what type of tires should we put on this car, or how do we fine-tune the engine, when nobody is really quite addressing the fact that the fuel tank is leaking 40% of its fuel. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter what tires we put on that car. It doesn't matter what engine we put in that hood. That car is not going to take us to where we want to go if we don't fix the 40% leak. And that's what has to be done from a food waste perspective. And so I was happy to join my friend Eric Schultz to co-author the book Food Foolish, as you had mentioned, which examines this hidden connection of food waste to hunger and climate change mm -hmm. to call attention to the fact that this is an issue that we need to think about. This is an issue, by the way, that can be solved through the climate agenda. Uh, by understanding that food waste is a big impact to climate, and so that as emerging economies start to develop plans that meet their COP21 commitments, they should take advantage of financial incentives that are being offered by the United Nations to do something to fix the food supply system. Because investing in this area is the only climate policy, the only climate policy that reduces greenhouse gases, feeds more people, saves water, and promotes national security. Mm. There is no other policy you can invest in that can do all four of those things at the same time. And so we're committed to 
connecting a global dialogue on this issue and helping people understand the enormous opportunity that's out there to feed the planet more sustainably. I'm convinced this is the way we can feed the planet more sustainably. And it's the basic definition of sustainability. We have to avoid the waste. Mm. John, this has been a, a really fascinating chat. Um, it's rare I get to speak to someone where you can cover so many um, broad sustainability <laughs> topics. So I suppose my, my last question is, how does how does the chief sustainability officer of a company with more than 200,000 employees get the time to, to be so invested in what's happening with aviation, get so passionate about what's happening with green buildings and have the time to write a book on food waste? <laughs> well, you know, it's... Um you know, the benefit of working at, at a big company like United Technologies that have, um, you know, technologies in all these areas, um, you know, and that's on purpose. You know, we balance our business. We balance our portfolio um, in aviation and buildings and a smaller part in the food refrigeration area, but equally important from an environmental standpoint. And so every day I get to, um, you know, engage on either uh, aviation or buildings or food issues. They're all fascinating. They all have uh, opportunities, and, you know, what keeps me motivated is I'm convinced that through advancements we can make in the technologies that are available today, we can significantly help the world urbanize in a more sustainable way. We can get to that goal of reducing our carbon emissions, and we can use technology as the enabler to get there. Okay, brilliant, John. Um, I'm, you know... I appreciate that you're um, you're heading back to the U.S. relatively soon, isn't it? Um, I'm sure you don't have a plane to catch right now, but um, <laughs> I, I won't keep you too much longer. So, yeah, thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to be on your podcast. Brilliant. Thank you. Great stuff. Yeah, well, that was one of the widest-ranging interviews I've um, heard us do. Uh, so that was really good stuff. Thanks, Matt. Um, interesting to hear how such a big company like United Tech is um, gearing up for such major changes. Um, in line with those global megatrends of population growth and urbanisation. So, uh, we're nearing the end of this week's episode of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Um, but, Matt, I can tell you're itching to give us a little bit more. So, <laughs> I'll allow you to see us out with your innovation of the week. Um, so, if we haven't been wowed enough already, you're going to tell us a story now about a particular project or initiative that stands out for being particularly innovative so what you got yeah definitely um and i suppose it ties into this kind of future transport theme that this is uh this podcast has picked up um yeah. unofficially uh and i i had a really interesting chat at the beginning of this week it's not actually appeared anywhere on the site just yet because okay. there's a lot to do with it essentially um with a company called Hyperchariot. um it's essentially e3 technologies brainchild um for you aware i'm sure some of you've heard of hyperloop tesla's mm-hmm. and elon musk's approach to high speed travel which mm-hmm. is essentially these uh, a network of tubes on these big kind of structural um steel pillars that transport your ev at high speeds and we're talking very high speed yeah we? we're talking like 400 miles per hour okay. plus type, type things this is essentially a more ambitious version of that um, the people I, I've spoken to have spoken to to Elon you know they're, they're on first name terms they're, they're friends even though they are in the same kind of competitive area they've mm-hmm. been chatting a lot and Hyperchariot is essentially that fast system transport but they envision a a place where you can get from London to Edinburgh in 8 minutes it is essentially 4,000 miles per hour is okay. what they're trying to test they they, they're, they're close to announcing a few partners out in the US to trial, I suppose, almost like a, a roller coaster of it. So to, and they want, you can buy tickets to be the first people to get transported from X to Y in, in the US. But they essentially view it as there's no point in having a hyperloop when you still have a car. 
Mm-hmm. In, in, in essence, they feel it's a waste of resources to build a car when you're not really driving it, you're just being shuttled along these tubes. So they want to take the, I suppose, the inner part of the car, just where you're sitting, mm-hmm. and, and put that in the system and transport you that way. Um, I won't bore you with the how it essentially works, because I'm still trying to take <laughs> through. It, it's technically like some sort of quantum physics oh, okay. involving magnetics and, and stuff like that. But um, they essentially want to put you in these pods and, yeah, shut you around, shut you around the globe, essentially. So they're envisioning times where um, for high-speed high travels go up into the sky on these big kind of um, pillars you can go below grounds and through urban cities you kind of travel along existing infrastructure routes it's they, they, they say it's essentially going to negate the need for airplanes for shipping because you can ship you know you can ship products in it and and cars and the impact that could potentially have they reckon that um, one pod is it will be equivalent to taking well not one pod but one one existing hyperchariot system is equivalent to taking 90% of the cars off the road. Okay, it's got potential huge benefits. And has this gone anywhere beyond paper? Yeah, there's, there, like I said, the, the infrastructure partnerships are in place. They've got a host of um, people from Hollywood, interestingly enough. People, uh, uh, I know one of the directors involved in making the Minority Report films okay. has taken a real interest in it. And he's been working on... Not Spielberg. The, no, no. He's been working on the IP stuff, uh, the inner pod, where you essentially, it's a virtual reality view of what's going on outside you. Because mm. glass is another resource that will cost and weigh and has a carbon footprint. And yeah, they they've essentially established partnerships with a few companies to start building the infrastructure to trial like four mile routes. So it's it's a long way off. You know, it's not something. Um, you know, we're not going to be getting the train up to London on it anytime soon. Mm. But um, it is. You know, you look towards twenty forty, twenty fifty. They they think by twenty forty they can have um, a UK trial in place around London. Okay. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, you should go get yourself at the front of the queue for one of the people that can be one of the first to test this for four thousand yeah. miles per hour. Exactly. Yeah. Although you might be an old man by then, from the sound of it. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I probably won't need to go anywhere. I'll be in like a vegetative state. <laughs> yeah. but. Well, no. Interesting stuff. Okay. Um, so yeah, we have had a bit of an unofficial theme throughout this podcast of, of travel, whether or not it's electric or super fast. Mm-hmm. Um, fascinating stuff. So that's a wrap for the Sustainable Business Covered podcast this week. Um, but we'll be back very soon because we've still got a few podcast interviews in the pipeline, don't we? Um, so Matt, I think you're heading back into the green room um, for your sort of Desert Island Disc style interview soon, aren't you? Yeah, I think um, I've, I've had a, a chat. I won't, you know, I won't, I won't name names. <laughs> want to keep it successful, but there was a, a period in the last couple of weeks where I was essentially just in London all time mm. doing podcast interviews. I think I was never more than 20 feet away from a Pret or a Costa for a, a large portion of my week. Well, there you go, yeah, and those, those formats have been really really well received, mm. actually, so the, the, the two that we've had so far of the Green Room chats have been among the most listened to podcasts so far, so it's working. Um, and actually, on that note, if anyone listening to this podcast has any suggestions or ideas about people you think we should feature or formats you'd like us to explore, then do get in touch. Uh, so you can email us at podcast at fav which is fav hyphen house dot com and maybe you can even get a shout out on the show um, if, we're, if we're that big um, it's also worth reminding our listeners that you can subscribe to the podcast for free on itunes just search for sustainable business covered and i'm sure it'll appear there so until next time it's a virtual goodbye from george in italy uh, goodbye from matt goodbye and goodbye from me goodbye